Our scripture reading this morning will be in Ephesians 4. We'll be reading verses 30 to 32. That's on page 978 if you're using one of the black Bibles back there. Give you just a minute to find it. Ephesians 4, 30 to 32. It says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. People of God, let's pray before we begin this morning. Lord, when we think about forgiveness, we know that it's one of the most difficult and yet holy things that you have called us to. And so pray that you would minister your word into the deepest and for some of us, the most sensitive places of our souls. This will bring up a lot of wounds for people. And I pray, Father, that you would please use your word as oil and wine poured into those wounds of hurting hearts so that we can grow in this discipline of forgiveness for the good of the families in our church. So, Father, I pray that you would come and anoint my lips. And I pray that we would all be transformed by your word. We submit. We just want to have a posture of humility before your word. So we submit ourselves to your word and pray that you would change us in Jesus name. Amen. Well, today we continue our series that we have started and called uh, First Aid for the Family. And each week during this uh, series, what we're doing is we're trying to give you a prescription for building a healthier family. And this morning we come to this great subject of forgiveness. Something that is obviously so important in our daily life. Something that you and I confront every day. And we need heavy doses of this if we're going to live our Christian lives well. So in fact, I would say this, that we will never reach the great places God wants to take our families unless we get this right. It's just not going to happen. I mean, we have to be forgiving people if we want to, to be the kind of families God is calling us to. And everyone here um, right now in this room has a few things that they need to either be forgiven of or extend forgiveness for in their families. I mean, nobody is without guilt this morning. I mean, we're all here, and this subject is just so tangible. It's so palpable. It's so real to us. And the truth is, to forgive a person that has hurt you is one of the greatest challenges of life, is it not? And beyond that, it's also true that it's one of the most important gifts that you can ever give another person. But why, let me, let me ask this question, why is it so hard to forgive those, especially those that are the closest to us? Why do we find that so hard? I mean, it seems that this is always an issue in our lives. We never graduate from forgiveness. 
It's not like you can kind of complete that course in this life and say, hey, you know, I've, I've done that. I've achieved that. I got the certificate. Nobody is at that place when it comes to forgiveness. And and so we have to come back to this subject over and over and over again, especially in the family and especially in our marriages and parenting. It comes back over and over. But I think that the reason why we struggle with forgiveness, as I was meditating on this, I think one of the primary reasons why we struggle with forgiveness is because God has built into our hearts a desire for justice. We have within us an innate sense an innate desire for wrongs to be righted, and that's good. That's a good desire. But you see, that desire is meant to drive us to God and not to ourselves. We have this impulse as human beings, as sinful fallen creatures, to take matters into our own hands and try to make things right. We think we can sort of take the matters into our own hands, and and when someone injures us, we can ignore them. When somebody hurts us, we can speak against them. We can gossip about them. We can try to pay them back for what they've done to us. In short, our temptation is to harden our hearts and to not forgive. And when we choose not to forgive, we are trying to take matters into our own hands and exercise justice when we should be leaving that matter to God. And here's why forgiveness is requires giving our heart to God and letting him administer justice. And that's why it's hard. Forgiveness is extremely hard and we all fail at it so much. In fact, the author of the book, Love and Respect, this phenomenal book on marriage says this. He says, nothing is easier than judging. Listen to this. Nothing is harder than forgiving and nothing will reap more blessings. I think he's right about that. Tim Keller says this. He says, forgiveness is a form of voluntary suffering. And I think what he means by that is that in a very real sense, when we choose to forgive, we're in fact choosing to suffer. I mean, like Jesus, when we forgive, we are releasing a person from the debt that they owe. And we are shouldering the responsibility, the liability of that sin. We're left to pick up the broken pieces of the, or, or to deal with the damage that's been done. So when you're sinned against, you lose something. Maybe it's happiness. Maybe it's peace of mind. Maybe it's a relationship or your reputation. And when that happens, we all have a choice that we can make. We can either pay the other person back by seeking to administer justice, or we can absorb the damage to ourselves, even though it may take a long time to recover. For example, your reputation. And so forgiveness is costly, and that's why we don't do it. Frankly, we just don't do it because it's too costly. So the question for us this morning is, how can I become a more forgiving person? How can we cultivate this fruit in our families? Well, this week as I was preparing this message, a verse really jumped out at me, and it's in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 17. And I was just really grabbed by this verse. And Jesus, in the context here, Jesus is gathering his disciples around, and they're facing the finality, think about this, of the crucifixion, and they're having the last supper. So this is a big moment in the life of his disciples. And Jesus gathers them around, and when he does that, Jesus says these words, listen, if you know these things, happy are you if you do them. 
I think I'll memorize that verse. John 13, 17. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. That's a great verse to memorize. And guess what? It applies to the subject of forgiveness. When we are followers of Jesus, and if you have received forgiveness, then God has some very particular expectations as to how that is supposed to impact your life. For example, Mark eleven twenty five, Jesus says, when you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive them. That's just all-encompassing language. I mean, how clear is that? Jesus is saying, if you stand praying, if you come to church, if you carry your Bible into church, if you lift your hands in worship, if you come into fellowship with God's people in the church, if you have anything against anyone, you are to forgive them right then and there. Or as Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, he says, we are to pray and forgive us our debts as also we have forgiven our debtors. Are you really ready for God to forgive you as you forgive your debtors? Like you forgive your debtors? Are we really ready for that kind of commitment? But see, Jesus didn't just talk about forgiveness. Jesus did it. From the woman who was caught in adultery to his final words on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus was and is all about forgiveness. Here's a question for us this morning. As a professing follower of Jesus, are you all about forgiveness? Well, take your Bibles and open them to Matthew 18. And we're going to go right to a story that Jesus told. Jason read for us Ephesians 4. We're going to get there in a little while, but we're going to start in Matthew 18. I have two points for this morning's message, and they're simple. And it's this, a portrait of forgiveness. That's what we have in Matthew 18. It's a portrait of forgiveness. And then number two, a path toward forgiveness. Okay, so we got a portrait and a path. We want to know how to forgive. And I want to start with a thesis this morning. And uh, so you can jot this down. This is, this is what I want to say. Healthy families are profoundly shaped by an awareness of God's love and forgiveness. Let me say that again. Healthy families are profoundly shaped. Okay, that's an important word. Profoundly shaped by an awareness of God's love and forgiveness. In other words, understanding God's forgiveness is the key to learning how to forgive others. When I understand God's love for me, specifically his forgiveness of me, that understanding actually empowers me to forgive others. So in short, understanding who I am affects how I treat others. So if you're a Christian, your most fundamental identity this morning is that you are loved by God, that you are forgiven by God. And that understanding will absolutely and categorically change your view of reality and it should shape the way you treat your family and friends and church. So before we get into the text, let's just be really clear on what we mean by forgiveness. The word forgive occurs in the New Testament 143 times, and it means to release a person from an obligation. It's often used in a financial context, and the idea is canceling a debt of some some sort. So let me give you a definition of forgiveness. Here's what I would say. Forgiveness is a decision. Let's start there. It's an act of the will. It's a choice. Okay? It's a decision Forgiveness is a decision to release a person, free them, 
to free them, to release a person from the obligation that resulted when they injured me. Or Tim Keller defines it this way. He says, forgiveness means giving up the right to seek repayment from the one who harmed you. Very similar definition. Or Winston Smith, who's a biblical counselor, he says this. He says, forgiveness is releasing another from the penalty of sin so that the relationship can be restored. Forgiveness means letting go of your right to punish another and choosing through the power of God's love to hold on to the person rather than hold on to their offense. I think that's helpful. So we're here in Matthew 18, and we're going to talk about this issue of forgiveness, but understand the context here. In Matthew 18, 15 through 20, Jesus is talking about conflict resolution. So in 15, you see this. Jesus is saying, listen, what Jesus is saying essentially is, listen, if you have a problem with somebody, then work it out. If somebody sins against you, if they offend you, if they hurt you, then your responsibility is to go and resolve that issue. Sitting back and and doing nothing is not an option. Look at verse 15. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, what are you to do? Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, then you have gained your brother. What's the point? The point is that we should never tire of forgiving and repenting and seeking to restore relationships. See, whenever a relationship cools off, and it does, this happens, or when a relationship is weakened in any way, it's always our responsibility to repair it. As Christians, we are in the relationship repair business. And we are constantly dealing with relationship repair, aren't we? I mean, all the time. In marriage, in parenting, in church, conflict comes up, and we have to constantly be working this issue out. And so, here in, in Matthew 18, Jesus is really clear. And, and God is holding us responsible for these matters. Letting relationships fall apart is simply not an option for a Christian. As Romans 12 says, you are to give your whole effort. Paul says in Romans 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So I realize that sometimes when you try to seek restoration and you try to seek forgiveness, it, it fails. But you are to try as hard as you can to live at peace with all men. That's our calling, and that's the context of Matthew 18. Now, Peter seems to be hung up on verse 15. Look at verse 15. And the reason why I think he's hung up there is because when you get down to verse 21, Jesus, he he asked Jesus a question. He says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? I mean, it's like Peter saying, okay, I understand your teaching, Jesus, but I got kind of a problem with it because I've dealt with some situations in my life where it just doesn't make sense that I would keep forgiving somebody over and over and over. So the question for you, Jesus, is how long am I supposed to do this? I mean, one time is fine, two, three, or four, maybe. But I mean, come on, Jesus, at some point, Let's be honest, like the forgiveness thing kind of runs out and we should be able to do something else or just move on. So how long should this thing go on? And if lest you think that's a crazy question, it's not because New Testament scholar R.T. France, who's written a great commentary on Matthew, says that the rabbis or the Pharisees of the day required forgiveness, listen, only up to three times. I'm serious. That was a law. So Peter's probably bringing that in and saying, well, look, I mean, the rabbis only require forgiveness up to three offenses. So if that's the case, I'm going to ask Jesus a question. I'm going to double the Pharisees and then add one. 
And I bet Jesus will be really impressed with that. I'm going to say, Jesus, okay, look, I mean, here's the thing. How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Like up to seven times. And he's expecting Jesus to just be like, man, Peter, woo, you are a forgiveness machine, man. Seven times? That's incredible. Well, I mean, oh, man, you are awesome. I'm so glad you're one of my disciples, Peter. Seven times. No, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus says, I don't say seven times, but 70 times seven. All right, now, now what's the math on that? 490. 490 times. Is Jesus' point here that you're supposed to kind of count up to 490 and sort of when you get to 490, you're done? No more forgiveness? Is that his point? I mean, if you got a tally sheet at home and you're sort of checking that off and you're at like 365, you got an issue and your marriage is probably not healthy. So his point is not that you count up to 490. Listen, his point is that you can't put a limit on forgiveness. And he tells this story to illustrate it. And what a phenomenal story this is. Pick it up in verse 23. Verse 23, Jesus says, says this. It says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. So first of all, this is a parable, okay? So Jesus often starts this way. The kingdom of heaven would be compared to something. But this parable is intended to teach us about forgiveness. So verse 24, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, a talent is not a skill. A talent is actually a currency, and it's something that they used in the New Testament. It's during in that era, it's a, it's a measurement of money. It's a currency. Okay, and one talent equals 20 years of wages. So let's just, let's just do some math here for a second. Let's assume that you work a job, and uh, let's assume that you make, just for, to round figures off, you make about $50,000. All right, now let's say that's your salary, $50,000, and a one talent is 20 years of wages. Okay, so 50000 okay, a year times 20 years, what's the math on that? Okay, that's a, that's a million dollars. Now, take a million dollars and multiply that times 10,000 because he owes 10,000 talents. And what's the math on that? $10 billion. Now, the point here is that this is unpayable. I mean, $10 billion is totally unpayable. If you bought all the sports teams in a city like Atlanta, and then you built them all new stadiums, and then you gave everybody free hot dogs for the rest of your life, you would still have money left over with $10 billion. That's tons of money. So the point is you can't pay. So verse 25, since he could not pay, yeah, obviously, his master ordered him to be sold, okay, with his children and all that he had and payment to be made. Now, imagine you're that servant. What are you thinking at that point? Verse 26. So the servant falls on his knees. 
The word is the same word here that we use for the word worship. It's proskuneo. The, the servant falls down in reverence. He puts his face to the ground and prostrates himself in an act of reverence. So the servant falls down and he implores him saying, implores him saying, have patience with me and listen, I will pay you everything. But here's the thing. That's an outrageous claim. He says, I'll pay you everything. He can't pay him everything. If he had 10 lifetimes, he couldn't pay everything. So he's just, he, he's just, just grabbing for words. Oh, please, servants, just do something to help me. He said, I'll pay you everything. Now, here's the thing that just blows you away about this story, and it's verse 27. Just as these words should just hit you. And out of pity for him, out of pity, compassion. For him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. <laughs> what? Are you serious? He forgives him of the debt of this ten billion dollar debt. I mean, this is this is unbelievable. We should gasp when we read that. And if we're thinking rightly, that should lead us to worship because this, friends, is what God has done for us in the gospel. Verse 27 is the gospel. And we'll come back to that here in a minute. Okay, so now at this point, the story takes a really rotten turn. And it's, 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 just, it's just crazy what happens in the story. Verse 28, but when the same servant went out... He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, that's just chump change because uh, th- that's really, uh, this amount of money is three months of pay. So you're talking about 20, you're talking about 10,000 talents, and you're talking about three months of pay. You're talking about $10 billion, and you're talking about something, if you use the same math, that would, it, it would work out to just three months of pay. It's really not that much money. So... So after seizing him, what happens here? Okay, the guy owes him a hundred denarii. Says when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, "Pay what you owe." So his fellow servant fell down, pleaded with him, "Have patience on me, and I will pay you." Deja vu. Remember that language? Same exact language that the previous servant said to the master. So you would expect the same answer, right? I mean, because he owes a whole lot less and he says the exact same thing and he implores him in the exact same way. He prostrates himself, he falls down and he asks him, he says this, this very thing. He pleads with him, have patience with me. I will pay you. Okay. So verse 30 and 31, verse 30 says, he refused. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. So these guys are upset at this. They've seen this happen. They can't believe that it happened. Okay, these are probably, un- the, the, the idea here is that in this story is that these are probably lost, unconverted people that are watching another guy who's been forgiven of a big debt and they're, they're disturbed by it. I mean, how can, you, how can you be forgiven of so much and then just walk away and refuse to forgive somebody that owes you a whole lot less? So they're disturbed by it and they report it to the master. Verse 32, then the master summoned him, seething to be sure. I'm sure he's angry, shaking with anger. 
And he said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Should you not? That's a rhetorical question. Those words are rhetorical. Should you not have had mercy? And the answer is yes. Yes, I should have had mercy. I should have, but I did not. I knew that it was right, but I didn't do it. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. John 13, 17. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. I should have done that. I knew that I was supposed to do it, but I did not do it. This is tragic. And can't you identify with this? You know to do the right thing, but your heart and your flesh does not do it. God help us. How often do we live this way in our daily lives where we know we are supposed to do something and, 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 and it's so obvious and you even feel a conviction. I've got to do that. I got to obey. And you go in the exact opposite direction and you just bold face disobey God. And we just do that. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Jesus is such a clear teacher. I mean, this parable, this story is just awesome. It just makes things so clear. So how how does this end? Verse 34. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers, or as some translations say, the torturers, okay, until he should pay all of his debt. Which, folks, he would never be able to do that. We've already said that. He can't pay all of his debt. So this is really a picture of hell and eternity. He delivers him to the torturers until he should pay his debt. The debt's infinite. He's not going to pay it. It's not going to happen. And then these words, and put a circle around verse 35 in your Bible. This is, this is the point. This is the conclusion of what we've read. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. From your heart, so also will my heavenly Father do to you. Those are very sobering words. And those are very true words. Jesus clearly says that an ongoing unwillingness to forgive will cost you your soul. God will treat you the same way you treat others. So, friends, let me speak into your life for a minute. How about that person that you're not forgiving? How about that person that you just can't stand? How about that person that irritates you? That when you look upon them, they're a sin that rises up in your heart. How about that? Do you really want God to treat you the way that you treat them? Listen, friends, an untrenched, and sorry, an entrenched refusal to forgive is a sign that we do not know God. Your behavior reveals the ugly condition of your heart. My behavior reveals the ugly condition of my heart. And this is really bad news because all of us have this in us. So we have come this morning to fight for forgiveness. 
Because we believe convictionally that we cannot go on in a state of unforgiveness. I mean, if that's clear, that's crystal clear. So we, we, just, we should just be saying, oh God, help us this morning. We cannot be an unforgiving church. We cannot be an unforgiving family. I can't be an unforgiving husband or wife or father or mother or an unforgiving child. God, help us. This is so huge. The stakes are high. All right, so here, now let me, let me flip it here. What's the good news of the parable? Okay, do you see yourself here? See, I'm the one with a debt that cannot be paid. Do you understand this about yourself? You are the one with a debt that cannot be paid in spite of the fact that we are good people, that we have done a lot of right things, that we have made good choices. Do we understand that before a holy God, we cannot pay our debt? We cannot. It's not possible. It's too big. And my only chance is if God does the unthinkable and God says to me, he says, never mind. But see, the problem is that the Bible teaches that God can't just say, never mind. That's the issue. I mean, his justice requires a payment. And that's the heart of the gospel that Jesus Christ came into the world and paid a debt that he did not owe because we owed a debt that we could not pay. We could not pay, could not pay it. And it is outrageous that the father would send his son, Jesus, to take the penalty for your sin. It is mind blowing that he would cancel your infinite debt against his holy name by crushing his son and enforcing and asking him and him voluntarily accepting to pay for your sin. This is insane. Who does that? Who sends their son to pay for a debt that you owe? No human being would do that. The greatest, most chivalrous, best person that you can think of in the world would never send their own son to pay for your debt. And yet God, who we are at at enmity with, sends his son to cancel your debt. This is staggering. This is the gospel. And here's the stunning thing. People get all hung up that that Christians say Jesus is the only way to heaven. And they're stunned by that. Who would say Jesus is the only way? But listen, there's something that's far more stunning than that. The stunning thing is that there's a way to heaven at all. That's stunning. And, And there is a way through what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. This is the gospel. Now, here's the big point that I want to press on you this morning. What this parable is teaching is that your life, listen, listen, your life should be completely altered by this reality. Shaken to the core. You have to first recognize your condition before a holy God. You should be baffled by his love. You should be rocked by the forgiveness that he has shown you. And you should throw your arms around that for the rest of your life. Because this is where it all starts. And if you understand that, then you will be transformed by this glorious message of the gospel. And that will transform how you parent. That will transform how you are a husband and a wife. That will transform how you relate with other Christians in the church. Because God has related to you with that kind of forgiveness. You see, when we understand what God has done for us, it revolutionizes our relationships. So... 
That's the big point, which is why I said earlier in my thesis statement that healthy families are profoundly shaped by an awareness of God's love and forgiveness. That's why some families, listen, are healthy and intimate and other families are dysfunctional and distant. I mean, it's as simple as that. And the prescription for a healthy family is to consider God's forgiveness and to model that with each other. So in light of all that, I mean, it just begs the question, so why don't people forgive? I mean, if, if this is so true and so, revolution, so revolutionary, why don't people forgive? Well, the first and most basic reason, I think that's obvious, is that we've lost sight of the gospel. Because the one who's been forgiven much, what does he do? He loves much. And if we're not forgiving, then we do not understand how much we've been, been forgiven. And if you can go on in a spirit of unforgiveness for a lifetime, then it's safe to say that you have never personally experienced the forgiveness of God because how else can you just live in complete unforgiveness? So, friends, if that's you this morning, if you're here this morning and you know that you've gone on for a lifetime of unforgiveness, this is a great moment to bow your knee to Jesus. Because he's willing to forgive you and wash you and cleanse you of your sins. And I I encourage you to do that this morning. So that's the first reason is we just lost sight of the gospel. The second reason is that we make excuses. Right? I mean, people hurt us and we don't want to forgive. And so we're always looking for a way out. And I think that's what Peter's doing in verse 21. Peter's looking for a loophole here. Peter's looking for an exit ramp. Peter's saying, hey, I mean, is there some wiggle room here? Is there an exception clause in this forgiveness contract? Is there something that I can sort of get out of here? And let me ask you this question. Is there anybody here this morning who would feel comfortable walking up on the stage, coming behind this this pulpit and saying, I have found an area of life where I don't have to give forgiveness for? Can anybody come up here and identify one area or one reason or one situation where you don't have to forgive? No, there's not. There's not a situation. Because think about what, there's no hurt too big to forgive. And the proof of that is think about what God has done. Think about what we've done to God and how God has responded to us. So if there's a hurt that's too big to forgive, then you can't be forgiven. Because in God's economy, it would be too big. And C.S. Lewis says this. He says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. The inexcusable. Are you, are you, do, do we have friends, do we have a disposition that's willing and ready to forgive the inexcusable? I mean, we're not excusing it. We're saying what happened to you is wrong. It's messed up. It's not just. Somebody messed you over. They sinned against you. Hey, listen to me. It's inexcusable. It's wrong. But listen, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. So this is the reason why we don't do it. We think we're justified by not forgiving because the pain was so bad. But we're not. This week I read an article from James McDonald and he mentioned four common excuses that people give for not forgiving. And I think they're spot on. For example, um, people say this. They say, I can't forgive because the hurt is too big. 
Now, I, that, 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 think about that logic for a second. I mean, if you're unwilling to forgive, the question is, what's your plan? What are you going to do with that hurt that's inside? I mean, I was thinking about it, grabbing a big bag and, and, and just throwing it over my shoulder and walking around with it and carrying some baggage, right? I mean, somebody hurt me and I've got this wound and I'm not going to deal with it, but I'm going to sure walk around with it. And I'm going to show people that, you know, I've been hurt. Somebody really hurt me and I've got that bag and I'm just going to carry it around with me. And we just carry these bags around with us. What, what are you going to do with that hurt and that unforgiveness? I mean, the, the, bigger, the bigger the hurt is, the more urgent that you deal with it. I mean, that's, that's an obvious point. We have to deal with these things. Think about what God has done for us. So we, we must deal with this. The second thing that people say is time, listen, time will heal it. Just, just, you know, you know, if I, if I, if I'm just going to ignore it, I'm going to do some other things in life. And over time, you know, it'll, 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 it'll dissipate and it'll die down and it'll go away. Well, if you think that, then make note of this time heals nothing time. Listen, time heals nothing. I mean, it's still there. And if you don't think so, it is, it's still there. And it's just as sensitive as you thought it ever was. Proof is somebody pokes you in that place or sticks their finger in that area, it'll start oozing out again. Just like that. Because time doesn't heal. Listen, time doesn't heal cancer. Time doesn't heal. Something divine and supernatural has to occur to bring you healing. You need God's help, not time. You need supernatural help from God to deal with this. Three, what's the third excuse people give? They'll say, well, I'll forgive when the other person comes and they tell, tell me that they're sorry. In other words, I'll have a heart of forgiveness. True forgiveness is extended when repentance happens, okay? That's when it's completed. I understand that. But listen, a forgiving heart is what we're called to at least. And, and so somebody will say, well, I'll forgive when the other person comes and tells me that they're sorry. Now, now don't be confused. Of course, pre, repentance is a prerequisite to final forgiveness. But God still expects us to have a forgiving heart. What did Jesus say here in verse 35? Look at it. So also my heavenly father will do to you if you do not forgive your brother from your what? From your heart. So to say, I'm not going to forgive this person until they come and they say, I'm sorry, that's an excuse. Okay, so let me say this. If that's, if that's our attitude, then just listen to me for a second. They're not coming. They're not coming. That person is not going to come back to you and say, I'm sorry. So if you're just sitting around waiting and hoping that they're going to come back and say, I'm sorry, they're not going to. That's human nature. And here's the thing. Even if they did come back, you wouldn't be ready to receive them because your heart is not disposed to forgive them. So people say, I'm just going to wait until they come and say, they're not coming. If they come, praise God. But the chances are in this life, in this, with the sin that is there, Chances are they're not coming back unless a special work of God moves upon them. Now listen, a fourth thing people say is I can't forgive because they'll just do something else. You know, they'll repeat the offense or they'll do something else. And here's the thing. Yeah, they might. They might do something else. But you don't want to carry around two bags, do you? And walk around with that. You don't want to carry around all these wounds 
And that should be sufficient motivation for us to deal with the first one. Of course, they might hurt us again. That's the nature of sin. But guess what? That's how all of us are. We all repeat the same offenses over and over with the same people. That's how we are. So of course, they'll wound us again. But that doesn't give us the right not to have a forgiving heart. So clearly, these excuses are empty. But but listen to me. The fallout of not forgiving is tragic. Let me ask you this. What happens when families don't forgive? What are the consequences of this? Jot this down. Unforgiveness punishes everyone in its path. It does. It destroys. Unforgiveness leaves a wake of destruction. I was thinking about that tornado. What was it that ripped through uh, Oklahoma? It was like a mile wide. That's what unforgiveness does to the family. It just wrecks everything in its path. And the consequences are massive. I mean, if you just think about this story. In this story, there's at least three that I can see. The first one is verse 28. And I would call it a physical breakdown. You can emotional, psychological, physical breakdown. If you're an unforgiving person, there's going to be a, even a, there'll, there'll be some effects in your body to that. Think about it. Look, verse 28 here. What happens with this guy is he is an unforgiving man. And what does he do? He resorts to violence. This guy goes at another man and starts to kill him. He starts to choke a man. That, that's the fruit of unforgiveness in his life. He doesn't say, hey, hey brother, you know, uh, there's some things on my heart that I'd really like to share with you. you know, I've got some pain, and I think it'd be great if we would sit down and really talk through these matters because you know, I'm hurting, and I, I don't want to talk about this, and I, I need to share some stuff with you. No, he goes to choke the man. Violence. So there's a physical breakdown. Secondly, there's a relational breakdown. I mean, th- think about this. The guy that he gave money to, pr- presumably he was friends with him. Because why else would he have given him money? Right? I mean, they must have at least some level of relationship to say, hey, yeah, hey, can you spot me 10 bucks, man? You know, I'm out and I need some money. And he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give that to you for now. And here you go. And so he gives him, he gives him the money. So they must have been decent friends at least. Now he's choking the man and he's killing him. So that, that relationship, I think it's fair to say, is over. And then you got the, the situation with his master, right? So the, the, the other guys get all upset and they're like, how could you possibly like choke this guy? He's our coworker. How could you act like that? So now he's killed all of his relationships with his coworkers. So now they all hate his guts. And then they go and they go snitch on him and tell the, uh, the master, look what this guy's done. And the master's angry and he throws him in prison. So now his boss hates him. All of his coworkers hate him. All right. And, and the one guy he gave, he loaned the money to, he tried to kill him. So this guy's ruined all of his relationships. And listen to me, unforgiveness will wreck all your relationships. If you hold an unforgiving heart, it will ruin your relationships. That's what it does. So physical breakdown, violence, relational breakdown. And then the third one is obvious is, is spiritual breakdown. Unforgiveness is spiritual suicide. When we choose not to forgive, we are choosing spiritual death. Look, look at verse 34. The, notice the phrase until he should pay all his debt. And as I said, it would take an eternity to do that. Hell's in view here. The consequences of not forgiving are eternal. So now you pull all this together in this composite picture. Do you see how destructive unforgiveness is? It destroys a person's life. It will ruin your life. It will ruin your family if you do not forgive. And ultimately, in the most serious thing, it will ruin your soul. Verse 35, these are such sobering words. Unforgiveness is cancer to the soul. 
And if you want God to heal and restore your life and your marriage and your family, friends, you must be forgiving. So those are the consequences of not forgiving. Now, I want to end with giving you um, an encouragement about how to, how to, how to forgive, okay? Because we, we need some practical guidance. So just flip over to Ephesians 4, and I'm just going to identify what I would call five steps toward forgiveness. And you can just write these down, and you can meditate on them at home and take these with you, okay? Now, because we need help here. The con- we've talked about the consequences of not forgiving. So how can we grow in this discipline? What steps can we take? And, and to, I want to paint a word picture while you're turning to Ephesians 4. And the word picture is this. Imagine you're on a track, track and field, and you see a hurdle, and... and uh, and you, st- you walk right up to a hurdle, and it's, you know, it's about this high. And if you stand right next to it, you're not going to be able to jump over that hurdle, right? If you want to jump over the hurdle, what do you need to do? You have to back up, and then you have to get a running start at the hurdle, and then you'll be able to leap over it. And so there's a principle here that I want to paint uh, regarding the Christian life and, it's, and Christian growth, and it works like this, is that Christian growth or growth in the Christian life comes from a position of health and vitality. And whenever we're spiritually healthy, we're in a position to cross hurdles that are difficult. And listen, forgiveness is one massive hurdle. So you can't stand right up next to this forgiveness hurdle and think you're going to jump over it. You have to be healthy in your Christian life and vital in your Christian life and take a running start at the hurdle of forgiveness to be able to leap over it. And in Ephesians chapter 4, what Paul's doing is he's backing up and he's saying, okay, there's at least five strides that you need to take if you're going to leap or go over this hurdle of forgiveness. It's, it's awesome how he puts these things together. So look at verse 30, okay? All right, now, now let me just say this, just, just up front, okay? This is the first stride right here in verse 30. Here it is. Forgiveness starts by remembering that the Holy Spirit lives within you. Look at verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Okay, so you got the Holy Spirit here. This is where forgiveness begins. It begins with an acknowledgement that the Holy Spirit, Christian believer, listen, lives within you. Your hurt this morning may be deeper than any hurt or anyone's hurt in this room. And it may be extremely hard for you to forgive. But here's what you need to know. Nobody has forgiven more than God himself. And this God, this forgiving God lives within you. So you must remember that. Number two, here's the second stride. Don't dwell on the injury. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and shouting, that's clamor, be put away from you along with all malice. Okay, so all these vices, put them all away. Bitterness, wrath, anger. Listen, they all come from one source. Where does bitterness, anger, and wrath come from? It comes from dwelling on an injury. That's why we get angry. That's why we get bitter. That's why we get resentful. Someone has wronged you and your mind keeps replaying that video over and over and over again. But listen, bitterness, anger, and wrath are fires. And the fires, if they're going to keep burning, have to be stoked. And when you keep replaying that video over and over again, I'm so mad at him. I can't believe that they did that. And you watch it. And you, every time you get up in the morning, it's the first thing you think about. When you drive to work, you think about them. When you're in the shower, you think about them. When you go to bed at night, you think about it. You think about it. You think about it. You think about it. And you're just stoking that fire. And Paul says, put it away. So here's the thing. This is the second stride. If you will add this second stride of not dwelling on the injury to the first stride of realizing that the spirit of the forgiving God is in you, you're already on your way toward forgiveness. Step three is have compassion on the one who has hurt you. Verse 32. 
is the positive side. Be kind to one another. Be tender-hearted. Now, this is very hard because they've hurt you deeply. I mean, you think about, but think about their condition, okay? They, they don't think they've done anything wrong. That's what's so tragic about it. They're not repentant. They don't see their sin. They don't think they've done anything wrong. But here, think about this. They don't see it. And that's scary for them. But I want you to be called out to compassion for a second. When you see a blind man on the street and he has a walking stick with him, do you feel a compulsion to kick his stick out? No, he's blind. He can't see it. So think about this for a second. They don't see it. They don't see their sin. And I I wrote this down. Hurtful situations will either make us worse Christians or better Christians, depending on how we respond to it. So use, use the pain as fuel for compassion. Say something like this. If something can hurt this much, then I must seek to be more compassionate to others. If the pain can be this bad, I must be compassionate. And then stride number four is realize that you need the forgiveness of others. Verse 32 says, forgive one another. So this isn't one way. This is two ways. Forgive one another which means you also need forgiveness. And we need to be humbly reminded of that. I also have sin that needs to be forgiven of. All right, so we're taking, a, we're taking a run at forgiveness, at the hurdle of forgiveness. And these are the strides and we're putting them together. And here's the last one. And this is the one that enables us to get over the hurdle of forgiveness. And it's, it's this, savor your forgiveness in Christ. Savor it, cherish it, love it, hold it. Verse 32, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. In other words, God's forgiveness is both the model and the motive of our forgiving. He shows us how to do it. He motivates us by it. And Paul is saying, if you want to get to forgiveness, you have to be gaining momentum by taking each of these steps. And the last stride to get over the hurdle is to fill your mind with what it means for God to forgive you. Turn that over in your mind. How has Christ forgiven you? Think about it. He's forgiven you freely. He's done it gladly. He's done it fully. He's done it in a way that's undeserved. He's done it in a way that's irreversible. He's done it in a way that's eternal. He's done it in a way that shows love and mercy and through the agony of his own heart. He punished Jesus in our place. Think about that. Savor your forgiveness in Christ. Appreciate it. Enjoy it. Get yourself lost in wonder and praise at what God has and is continuing to do for you. And get lost in that praise. And while you're doing that, you will find yourself suddenly able to extend forgiveness to somebody else. Because you're so amazed. So these six strides toward forgiveness, if we practice these things, we will become more forgiving people. Especially that last one. So let me close this way, okay? I, I just want to give you a word of comfort because I know there's people here that are hurting and some of you are so wounded from people who have sinned against you. You're just, you're just so jacked up by it. Listen to me for a second, okay? We're closing. I'm going to pray and we're going to hear a, just a quick testimony. But just listen. Some of you are really, really hurting. You're tired, in fact, it's hard for you to even be around people anymore because you've been hurt so bad and you don't want somebody to ask you to do anything because you just can't give anymore. You're discouraged, you're downtrodden and you find yourself in a place of emptiness and it feels like God has forgotten you. You hang your head low, you sink and you just wonder why I, you just struggle to even live. But I want to remind you this morning, listen, that nothing just happens. Whatever it is that has caused you so much pain in your life, there is a reason for it. 
There's a reason why it's happened. In God's infinite wisdom, he had a sovereign purpose for it all. None of it is wasted. It's not a mistake. It's not an accident. God did not somehow fall asleep on the job and Satan snuck in and wrecked your life. That did not happen. God never sleeps and he never slumbers. Everything that has happened to you, the the hurt, the pain that has been caused in your life, God knows about. The devil has not ruined your life. Your life is not over. Hear me. God knows what happened to you and he knows how much time you spent and he knows who walked out and left you and he knows about the consequences of that on your children and he knows about who has betrayed you and he knows who molested you and he knows who raped you and he knows about the emotional turmoil that that left you in and he knows who rejected you and he knows that you were done wrong and he knows what they took from you and he knows that it led to all this pain and suffering of your life and he knows that you are wounded and weary to the point of death. He knows that. So friends, listen, tell him your pain, cry out to God. Remember that God knows and nothing just happens. It's not an accident, but listen to me, accept his will, get up, wash your face and keep going. God will make it right. You don't have to exact justice. God will do it. Jesus Christ is enough for you and he's forgiven you an infinite debt. Friends, let that reality transform your life. Let that reality transform your marriage and your parenting and your church relationships. And know this, that 10,000 years from today, you will be singing praises of the righteousness of God who loved you enough to put Christ in your place. That's your identity. You are forgiven by God. You are loved by God. You are washed. You're clean. You're free. And your life has, is, is meant to be altered by that reality. And when it is, friends, you will find the power to forgive. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. What can we say, oh God? You have healed us. You've redeemed us. You've raised us up, Lord. We give you praise. We honor you this morning. And we thank you for your grace. Father, transform us by this word, we pray. We need to be a forgiving church and family and parents and husbands, wives. So God, please create this in us. Give us the tenacity to work for it. In Jesus' name, amen. I just want to invite Dave and Carla uh, to come up. They're just going to share a two-minute testimony of how uh, this issue of forgiveness has impacted their marriage and family. So... Let me grab a microphone for you. Okay. Thank you. This is so, this is so (laughs) countercultural and supernatural. Um, Carla and I were Christians. I was Christian for 10 years and she was a Christian for 13 years before we got married. We thought we had this gospel thing pretty down pat until you get married and then you're put in a cauldron there of testing uh, your your faith. Uh, wasn't too bad at first. You know, the honeymoon's always good, but uh, forgiveness was really hard when we first got married. Um, we weren't really compatible and we still, to a large extent, because of our personalities, are not naturally compatible people. And so it began to create a lot of tension in our lives. 
And we did not forgive uh, for probably the first 15 years of our marriage at least. Uh, we live with, I live with hurt and, uh, uh, and she lived with uh, resentment and bitterness. And uh, it created a lot of tension in our lives. But through the grace of God and by the work of the Holy Spirit and faithful men who counseled us and helped us, uh, I can testify that the gospel is what set us free. The very fact that we began to realize how great our sin was toward God. You know, pride and a lack of understanding of your sin against God really doesn't cause you to appreciate uh, how much God has forgiven you. So as we begin to see how much we had sinned against God, we owed him that $10 billion. Uh, we begin to able to release us to forgive each other. Um, and so by, because of that, we've uh, grown. We're still working on it. We had to exercise this grace this morning. <laughs> so... Uh, and then, of course, when you have kids, too, you begin to realize, uh, you know, when they're little, they're compliant, but as they get older, they have the growing capacity to sin and to, and to hurt you, too. And so as you begin to exercise forgiveness with your children, they see it in your marriage, but also going to them and asking for forgiveness is a big step. As you ask your kids to forgive you for how you either didn't do something you should have done or did something you shouldn't do. And so, parents, I encourage you guys to uh, ask your kids to forgive you, too. So, uh, by the grace of God, we'll strive till the end of time. But I know until Jesus comes back, we're going to have to exercise this grace of forgiveness. So, thank you. If you'll stand with me, I'll go ahead and dismiss us. Um, before I give the benediction this morning, um, let me just remind any of you who are visiting with us and or are not attached to a community group of sorts of, of, of fellow Christians that can encourage you. Um, we want to encourage you to stick around. We have two of our groups, Tim Klein's group and Dave Owens' group, are, are meeting on Sunday afternoons immediately right after the service, and they'll be having lunch together in the fellowship hall. Please join them. If you're a visitor and you're not tied into a, a group of Christians here at our church, uh, please do that because um, we really believe as a body that's, that's the key to transformation. It, this is important, getting together and worshiping in large settings like this, but getting in a smaller group of Christians that can encourage one another is really, really c critical to working out a lot of the stuff that Pastor Jonathan preached for us this morning. So I encourage you to stick around. Well, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and give you peace.